Welcome to Room 106. I'm Richard Garlick from Planning Magazine. And I'm John Gagan, also from Planning Magazine. Every fortnight, we enter Room 106, the vault into which all new planning information is deposited, and extract the key things you need to know. So, coming up, the key news from the past fortnight and what it means for you. An MP has told the House of Commons that councillors in his constituency have dismally failed in the preparation of their disgraceful local plan. We'll ask what he's complaining about and how the council has responded. The Tory leadership hopefuls continue to trade planning pledges. We'll update you on their latest proposals. And a successful appeal against the refusal of 475 homes on an unallocated site has been quashed by the High Court because of a conflict with an emerging plan. We'll explain why. And in our deep dive section, we'll examine the steps the government is taking to tackle the nutrient water pollution problems and ask whether they will unblock housing permissions, and if so, when. By the end of the show, you should know enough to navigate any chance encounters with the boss at the coffee machine. So, time to put on the head torches. Ready to go in? OK. Well, here we are again in room 106. I thought it might look a bit emptier, seeing as it's August, but it's as rammed as ever. Look at that stack of documents. Looks like it's West Oxfordshire District Council's file on Jeremy Clarkson. Ah, oh, OK, that would explain it. So, John, what news stories have stood out in the past fortnight? Well, our most read story of the past fortnight is about a Surrey MP fiercely attacking in Parliament his council's emerging local plan. The Conservative MP for Mole Valley, Paul Beresford, told the House of Commons that Mole Valley District Council's disgraceful draft plan is inadequate, insufficient and will not provide enough dwellings. So what's significant about this is that it shows the political pressures that some local planning authorities in high growth areas are under, especially if they also have large amounts of greenbelts. So in Mole Valley, more than three quarters of the area is designated as greenbelt and 37% of it is designated as an area of outstanding natural beauty. So that's a lot of protected land. And the fact this was raised at a national level in the House of Commons at a time when many councils are delaying or withdrawing their local plans. So Beresford made the comment during a parliamentary debate last month. Notably, Mole Valley Council is Lib Dem controlled, so there's likely to be a political motive behind the MP's comments. Its plan is at the draft stage, so it's still not finalised. Um, it was recently submitted for examination with the first set of hearings already completed. OK, so what exactly did Beresford say? So he said that in their preparation of the plan, the Lib Dem councillors at Mole Valley had dismally failed to meet the objectives of the plan, which should include what he called a chance to recommit to the vital principles of Greenbelt protection and to begin the much-needed revival of our towns, particularly Dorking and Leatherhead. So a key objection he had was over the level of Greenbelt release proposed in the plan. He said, we must take any chance to prevent the Lib Dems from grabbing our precious Greenbelts and forever ruining our irreplaceable natural surroundings. He also said Mole Valley needs a plan that saves its Greenbelt and revives its towns. So he's also saying that it should focus more on brownfield development. And then he also criticised the procedures used to get the plan through the council, which he called a mess and said there was no vote for or against the uh, final draft of the plan, just a vote to note it. 
And he said councils had failed to consult with a number of crucial stakeholders, including uh, Surrey County Council, Thames Water and Highways England. And he said where it does contain development, it is inadequate, insufficient and will not provide enough dwellings. So it's interesting that the MP attacked the council of having housing and development targets that he felt were too low and at the same time for releasing too much Greenbelt. Obviously, it's tricky if you're a Greenbelt authority to have high housing targets and avoid high levels of Greenbelt release. Absolutely. And I, and I think it also shows the incredibly high political risk that you run for any political party as soon as it does anything to change uh, you know, Greenbelt designation. It takes political courage to make the case for taking land out of the Greenbelt because even if you believe it is the most sustainable option, and this is just an example of the um, sort of level of uh, opprobrium you may face if you dare to do that. Yes, that's right. So what does the draft plan propose? The council submitted its draft plan to the Secretary of State in February, and it proposes an annual housing target of 353 homes per year, which is significantly lower than the council's annual local housing need figure of 456 which is calculated using the government's standard methodology. And the annual target equates to 77% of that housing need level. So it's quite a bit lower. The submitted version of the plan also nearly halved the amount of Greenbelt release compared to an earlier draft of the document, and it reduced the annual housing target by more than a fifth. So you've got an earlier version of the plan that was a lot more high growth than the current version. So when they made these changes last autumn, the council said they were made in an effort to conserve the district's distinctive landscape. The current version proposes releasing 131 hectares of Greenbelt land for development, which is down from 234 hectares. So a reduction of about 44%. So Beresford's, what he said in the House of Commons was in the form of a question to the housing minister, is that right? The housing minister speaking in Parliament that day was Paul Scully who's a housing department minister. And in response, he said he couldn't address the uh, mole value plan specifically while it was under assessment by a government planning inspector. He did say that the government's national planning policy had strong protections that safeguard this important land for future generations. He reiterated the national policy position on changing Greenbelt boundaries only in exceptional circumstances. Then Beresford challenged him on what exactly exceptional circumstances mean and whether it means housing merely to fill the statistical numbers required or requested. It's not clear what this means exactly, but he seems to be asking whether meeting a local housing need or a local plan's draft housing target would be sufficient to change Greenbelt boundaries. And Scully said that this was the case. He said it does not mean just jumping into targets because of a lack of preparation elsewhere. Okay, so Scully was saying that it isn't the case that meeting the standard method produced figure would justify a a Greenbelt incursion. That seems to be what he was saying, yes. And um, how did the council respond? So in a statement, the council's cabinet member for planning, Margaret Cooksey, said, uh, we were very surprised that Sir Paul used the floor of the House of Commons to express his views on the Mole Valley local plan, particularly after it has been submitted and completed its first set of hearings. So she's referring there to the examination hearings. She said, had the MP contacted her or the planning officers, it would have been possible to clear up many of his misunderstandings and inaccuracies prior to airing them in the House. She added, we are proposing Greenbelt release where there are exceptional circumstances and increased building in our towns. 
Given the character of our towns and villages and the nature of the surrounding green belts and our area of outstanding natural beauty, it is a balanced plan seeking to respect the best of both. So she's saying that the council is trying to build more in towns, but you know they have to think about preserving the special nature of the towns and villages as well as the special nature of the surrounding countryside. And you know that, that, that's a difficult balance to strike. Well, it's a classic example, isn't it, of a, of a local authority weighing up planning policy, deciding that its best option is to remove a small amount of greenbelt if it's going to comply with, with government planning policy. Government obviously doesn't tend to individually support greenbelt allocation, although, of course, in particular circumstances, it does allow those uh, th- those allocations to happen. But we've obviously seen in the last couple of weeks Rishi Sunak saying that if he led a government he would make it impossible for local authorities to to take land out of the green belt in that way. So even where a democratically elected local authority was coming to the view that the best option was to take the green belt out, he wouldn't let that happen. So I guess what we're seeing here is a council who's feeling a lot of political heat for trying to partly use green belt land in order to meet their housing requirements. In the future, they wouldn't even have that option if uh, Rishi Sunak was to become Prime Minister. Yes, and that that leads quite nicely into my second um, big news stories of the past fortnight, which is the latest planning promises by the two candidates in the race to be the next Prime Minister, one of which is Rishi Sunak, who you've just been talking about. And since our last podcast, they've both been talking a lot about planning and housing delivery. So firstly, Liz Truss, who's the front runner and the favourite to become the next Prime Minister, so last week at a party hustings, she reportedly pledged a crackdown on solar farm developments, saying our fields shouldn't be full of solar panels. Late last month, she said she would rip up red tape that's holding back house building and give more power to local communities. She said, interestingly, she said, as a former councillor, I remember those painful hours sitting through planning committees. I'll put power back in local councillors' hands who know far better than Whitehall what their communities want. She also used a TV debate with Sunak last month to set out her plans for what she calls investment zones with simplified planning regimes. And these are areas with low tax. They benefit from reduced regulations, including relaxed planning rules. And she said she wanted the use of the zones to encourage the construction of new model villages. And she referred to the Victorian era creations of Bourneville near Birmingham and Saltaire in Bradford. And in a column in the Telegraph at around the same time, she said these zones would be at the heart of my vision for levelling up. But she said she would work with local communities to identify sites ripe for transformation across the country through lower taxes, reduced planning restrictions and red tape. Meanwhile, Rishi Sunak, and you've just talked, to, you just mentioned a few of his recent uh, announcements, including on Greenbelt, he vowed to prevent local authorities from changing Greenbelt boundaries to release land for development. And he said he'd do that through the forthcoming review of the National Planning Policy Framework. And he would order planning bureaucrats to automatically reject any such proposals. So that seems to be referring to the planning inspectorate. And he said he will will also ask the Housing Secretary to change national policy to make it clear that if a local community has clearly judged development to be inappropriate, it should not be permitted on Greenbelt in, under any circumstances. So that's really toughening the uh, the Greenbelt test at the moment. That's be very special circumstances to allow development on the Greenbelt. 
He also said he would help councils complete local plans by immediately relaxing constraints, such as the requirement to demonstrate a five-year housing land supply. And he's promised to review how local housing need is assessed. And he's pointed to the fact that they're currently based on the out-of-date household growth projections from 2014. He's also said he does not support the government's manifesto pledge to build 300,000 homes a year. And then late last week, he promised new penalties to prompt developers to build out permissions more quickly. So he, was, he said he wanted to make sure developers build out fast on sites where they already have planning permission. Okay, so that's a very broad range of policy ideas coming forward. Just very broadly, how have the comments been received? So unsurprisingly, developers and consultants have been pretty despairing of the tone of the debate. The National Federation of Builders, uh, a trade body for house builders, said it is unhappy that both uh, Sunak and Trust have abandoned the Tories' 2019 manifesto pledge of 300,000 new homes a year by the mid-2020s. But there are also voices in the Conservative Party that are unhappy with the two candidates' direction of travel. So we've had... I noticed a recent Conservative Home article that said um, a true heir to Thatcher would confront the housing crisis, but neither Sunak nor Truss will. A recent comment piece in The Telegraph by Conservative commentator Liam Halligan said that Sunak's tough stance on the Greenbelt is a route to long-term Tory meltdown because it would crush the home ownership dreams of millions. And he said, far from being concreted over, Greenbelt acreage has more than doubled since the 1970s and the no space to build mantra is a myth. So, I mean, both candidates seem to be pursuing a more conservationist, localist approach rather than the um, deregulatory position that was more popular in the Cameron Osborne era. And they, I guess they, they figure that's going to be a winner with the Tory party members. Fantastic. And what's the third story for this edition, John? So my third news story is a court case that has prompted a lot of interest from readers and they're always keen on judges overturning decisions by councils or planning inspectors. And in this case, it was an inspector's permission for 475 homes on an unallocated site that was overturned by the High Court. The judge found that the inspector made an error in failing to consider the scheme's conflict with policies in an emerging local plan And uh, what's significant here is the fact the judge disagreed with the inspector on the amount of weight that should be attached to a a draft local plan. So that's a plan that hasn't yet been through um, examination and been adopted. And the case concerns um, plans by volume house builder Persimmon to build a housing development close to Goring-by-Sea in West Sussex. And why did the inspector allow the appeal? So in February this year, the inspector granted outline permission for the scheme and a key factor in the decision was the area's exceptionally high unmet need for market housing and the substantial unmet need for affordable housing. He also noted the council was unable to demonstrate a five-year housing land supply and although the emerging plan designated the site in question as a strategic green gap, uh, the inspector noted that it was some way off adoption and could be subject to change. Okay. And then why did the judge then go on to overturn that decision? So the council obviously challenged the inspector's decision and the judge, Mrs Justice Lang, found that he erred in failing to take account of these emerging local plan policies. In particular, he made no mention of of one of the policies in question, which sets out the count, which aims to deliver housing developments within existing built-up areas 
and other specified edge of town sites. And it aims to protect valued open spaces, undeveloped landscapes, including gaps between settlements, which is, you know, this particular proposal was on would be on such a gap. The judge said the inspector should have assessed the proposal against these emerging policies and weighed any conflict in the overall planning balance. She added that the, over, that the preparation of the draft plan was at a relatively advanced stage and there's no basis to assume that the, um, the key emerging policy would be changed before the plan was adopted. Okay, and finally, very briefly, what, what did the council have to say about the verdict? So uh, the council was pleased, unsurprisingly, and it emphasised the environmental issues at play in the case. Its Labour leader, Dr Becky Cooper, said um, the decision justifies our actions in taking this appeal forward. We remain committed to protecting our green spaces, ensuring that the climate emergency is at the heart of all our decision-making, alongside moving forward with a strong social housing offer on our brownfield sites. Okay, well, many thanks, John. Three interesting stories. Um, I guess a theme that's not very encouraging for the development industry, but there's certainly a sort of coherent pattern that seems to be sort of running through um, uh, what's happening in the news at the moment. And, of course, more details of all these stories can be found on planningresource.co.uk. So we're going to see you a bit later to talk about your quirky story of the week. But now I'm going to have to leave you for a bit to do this week's deep dive. Okay, well, now I need to find my way to the big new extension to Room 106 where they put the guidance on nutrient pollution to protected watercourses and how to make planning decisions without worsening it. I know Ben Cochin has been looking at this and is down here somewhere among the freshly hewn granite. Ah, Ben. Hello, Richard. So, Ben, earlier this year the development industry was saying that government planning advice, or Natural England planning advice, on preventing water pollution from development was holding up 100,000 homes. But the government has now announced that it's taking steps to deal with the problem. Remind us what this nutrient neutrality issue is and why it's blocking planning permissions. Well, our story goes back to late 2018 with the famous Dutch case in the European Court of Justice. It tightened up the rules on mitigating the impacts of new development schemes on sensitive habitats. And the judgment required that planning authorities had to prove that new housing schemes did not add to pollution in these habitats, particularly from nutrients like nitrogen and phosphates. And since then, Natural England has been ordering planning authorities not to approve schemes unless the developers could really show that they don't add uh, to the pollution. And the first area that it seemed to pick on in 2019 was actually the Solent. And these habitats are uh, sites of special scientific interest, nature reserves, all these kind of things. And it came as a surprise to the local authorities. They were really taken aback. And it caused a moratorium in effect on a lot of housing development. Planning applications were frozen at any stage in their consideration. Okay. And how many places is this problem now affecting? Well, it sort of spread. And March this year, 
the total rose to 74 planning authorities affecting 27 watercourses. So it's pretty big. And hence, the Home Builders Federation came up with this figure that actually 100,000 homes were caught in this log jam. Okay, so pretty important problem. But over recent weeks, the government has introduced some new measures to try and help unblock these permissions. So can you tell us a little bit about what these new measures are and how they're due to be introduced? Well, I think perhaps we should just go back to the Solent response because Solent actually set the pattern because they've been working on it now for three years and they've eventually sussed it. And so what we've got is is a package of measures which governments come out with which builds on Solent and goes further. The first item of the package is a commitment that there will be amendments to the levelling up and regeneration bill currently trundling through government, which would require the water authorities to upgrade their wastewater treatment works to a level that will, as much as technically possible, can take out these nutrients. But this would only happen by 2030. Okay. And actually would not be completely effective, but we'll come on to that. Uh, The other measure is some sort of national scheme to set up mitigation projects across these areas so that the nutrients leaking in to the watercourses will be the effect will be mitigated by other measures which will equally reduce the nutrient problem. Okay, so so and the first of those is the wastewater one. That the, the the broad thinking behind it is that if you improve the efficiency of the sewage plants in the area, so there's or uh, so that there's less of these nutrients being put out by the wastewater treatment facilities, then um, that'll leave a bit more headroom for for things like developments. So you don't have to worry quite so much about the pollutants coming out of development. I, I presume that's the the way that the first one works, is that right? That's absolutely right, because basically at the moment, the requirements on the water companies don't really cover nutrients, or they're very varied. Some do to a greater extent than others. So what the government's hoping is, is that the water companies will do their darndest to get the nutrients out of the, the, uh, out, out of the water before it goes back into the rivers. Okay, okay. And then the National Credit Scheme would give you an option as a developer to buy some credits from this scheme, which would essentially, these credits would effectively contribute to the alleviation of the nutrient problem in one place. And that would maybe compensate for uh, nutrient problems that that, that would otherwise be created by the new development. That's in essence what it would be. And I think perhaps to illustrate this, it would be good to just look very briefly at the solar scheme because they're they're doing it now. So basically, what's happening is is that uh, the councils or they've got a wildlife trust, the Hampshire and Isle of Wight Wildlife Trust, is taking land out of agricultural use, which is a major cause of nutrients leaking into these watercourses, and turning it into nature reserves. And so that means that nutrients from that agricultural land is no longer going into the watercourses. And what they're doing is selling these credits to developers and they can then get their planning permissions. That's in essence what these mitigation schemes are. 
So you, you, the developer buys the credit from the Wildlife Trust, who can thereby fund taking land out of agricultural use, thereby reducing the amount of nutrients going into rivers from fertiliser, and that creates a bit of space for new development, which you know, can af afford to to generate a little bit of, uh, of excess nutrients because it's been compensated for elsewhere. The benefits of this scheme is that it could be set up relatively quickly. The water company efforts are likely to come in in 2030. And so your developers could still be waiting for their planning permission till then, unless this mitigation scheme is established. And theoretically, it could be set up within six months. But they have to find the land. They have to find the mitigation opportunities before, obviously, any permission can be issued. OK, so are commentators saying that there is realistically a prospect that this, the, the national credit scheme could be in place as early as six months' time? Well, conceivably, it's quite complicated. Councils need to have... A, this, this is a really technical area that councils are having to get to grips with pretty quickly. It's taken the Solent authorities three years to get on top of it. They are prepared to share their expertise with other authorities. Um, but it, it's complicated and they need a lot of skills around ecology and environment to assess these schemes. And then, of course, Natural England that has to approve them, they have to give their OK as well. And it's quite an undertaking across a wide area. So whether it, how quickly it happens, and there's a good deal of frustration about this amongst the house builders that it will take its time. Okay, so the, you know, six months absolutely sort of at, at best before people can start getting permissions in places where currently they, they wouldn't be able to because of uh, nutrient problems through the new national credit scheme, but it could take a lot longer and it's going to be 2030 before people can at best before people can start seeing improvement in wastewater treatment, taking a little bit of the pressure off, off the development sector? I think, yes, and even after 2030, from what I understand is, is that, and I'm no expert in the technology of all this, but I understand that even after 2030, there will be some need for mitigation because it, it's very, very difficult to get all the uh, nutrients out of the water so they will still need mitigation after 2030. I think one of the strange things that's going to have to be worked out is what the national scheme entails as opposed to these local initiatives because one of the points that you need to bear in mind is is that every mitigation scheme will have to be focused on the particular water course where the house building is taking place. You can't just go to the Natural England say, can I buy enough credits for my 500 homes? They will have to have a scheme in the particular area where your housing is being proposed. Okay, so you can't, you can't clean up the water in Newcastle and then build in Southampton? No, <laughs> you have to have a mitigation scheme in Southampton for your scheme in Southampton. Okay, that's an that's important point. Also, just coming back to something you were just saying just now. So these future upgrades to wastewater treatment works, 
do they offer the prospect of some river catchments being completely able to sort of move out of the sort of red zone, as it were? Or do you think they're always going to be in this sort of unfavourable condition sort of uh, position? Well, that's a really interesting question. And, and clearly focusing on the water treatment works is very helpful. But you have to understand that nutrients coming out of wastewater treatment works is only half the problem. The other half is agriculture. Agriculture makes up a similar amount, contributes a similar amount of nutrients going into the water courses as the water wastewater works. And government has not done anything about that. I understand it's, you know, it's about 40% of nutrients is coming from agriculture and it's in effect unregulated. Okay. So although the theory is that improving the wastewater treatment plants could make some of these protected watercourses less sensitive to nutrient output or uh, from um, fr- from development it may not make such a major improvement as to render nutrient output from let's say house building uh, completely irrelevant it might still be sufficiently sensitive in those places for the still to be continued uh, scrutiny of uh, of what kind of impact new development will have Oh, absolutely. I think natural England is going to be pretty scrutinised this pretty closely as new house building comes forward in these areas and possibly other areas that come to their notice. So this is something that's blown up very much in the last you know, two or three years, as you, as you say. But this question of whether you know water pollution is um, going to be worsened by, by development is going to be something that's going to become, in certain parts of the country, is going to become a regular consideration in planning matters. Oh, I think so. I think so. Yes, it, it's not. It's it's not going to go away. It's been known about for twenty years, I have to say, but we haven't done anything until the the, the famous Dutch case. Right. Uh, and if we'd done something twenty years ago, we might not have the problem now of all the green algae, etc., which grows in some of these watercourses. Okay. So, one thing that emerged from the government's recent update on what it was doing about this problem was clarification about the position of schemes which had been given permission in some form before this nutrient neutrality problem emerged, but now require further detailed permissions or discharge of conditions. And there'd been some question about whether such schemes would be exempt from the nutrient neutrality considerations, but it now appears that they will definitely not be exempt and they will be... um, uh, you know that, that they won't escape the the new sort of nutrients regime. So will that actually worsen the problem, and could it lead to legal challenges where people have relied on legal advice that has told them that they're going to be okay to go ahead? From what I understand it, and my knowledge is mainly around the Solent, is it's actually authorities have been taking such a precautionary approach. They've made it quite plain to applicants that they can't issue any sort of permission for a scheme until the nutrients issue has been resolved. So I think this is just a reinforcing what authorities have been doing anyway. It's saying that basically, you know, if you have not got one I dotted and one T crossed, your scheme can't go ahead. And the government has just kind of confirmed that here. I think the HBF, in it, with its legal advice trying to find ways around that but i'm not sure that it's been bought by any authorities 
Okay, well, many thanks for that, Ben. I'm now going to have to leave you here in this vast new extension to Room 106, but I look forward to seeing you here again soon. Pleasure, Richard. I look forward to it. Right, now to find John again so you can select his reader's choice, the story that's caught the eyes of our readers without necessarily being something that's going to affect most of their working lives. Ah, there he is, John. Hello, Richard. So what's the quirky story for this week? So uh, last month, our readers will remember that Jeremy Clarkson announced that he'd used permitted development rights to open a, a restaurant on his farm, despite plans for that restaurant being refused by the council earlier in the year. And now it's been revealed that the fact he's opened the restaurant is being investigated by the council. And the, the council has said that it's checking out the Diddley Farm Squat restaurant to ensure it is compliant with local and national planning law and policies. So it may be that the planning officers have the last laugh in this particular saga. But too soon to say, I guess. Too soon to say, yeah. But the saga continues. OK, well, thanks very much, John. I think our work is done. Let's get out before there are any more announcements or decisions. Great. That's another fortnight summarised. Yes, we'll be back in two weeks to give you another update on the key things happening in the sector. In the meantime, don't forget to subscribe wherever you normally get your podcasts. And to get a daily bulletin of planning news, plus weekly analysis, specialist bulletins and our quarterly print magazine... Subscribe at planningresource.co.uk. Our thanks to producer Daisy Chaku from Rethink, and thanks for listening. Bye.